Are the sound guys? Yes. The sound guys are with us. Pan American Center has been devoted for many years to the promotion of translation and the rights of translators. In fact, was the first organization of writers in this country to publish a model contract for translators to follow in negotiating with publishers for the proper contractual terms covering their creative work, which was often done on a grossly underpaid work-for-hire basis. Penn American Center has also had a very active standing translation committee to serve as a watchdog over the rights of translators and their just recognition. And it has frequently sponsored events that offer translators a forum of the kind creative writers in other genres have long since become accustomed to. In this instance, with the generous co-sponsorship of the Alexander S. Onassis Center for Hellenic Studies, uh, which of course is a place close to my heart. I'm especially pleased that the panel tonight amply illustrates why I can use the term creative so often in referring to translators. Each of our three panelists has demonstrated over the years that translation is a high form of art, calling not only on the same sources in energy and intellect that a poet or novelist draws on in doing his job of work, but also demanding more than normal linguistic aptitude, literary scholarship, and critical insight. I'm also pleased that I've had the privilege of breaking bread in some form with each of these distinguished panelists. To take them in alphabetical order, the first has been a dear friend and colleague since 1960 at least. I've worked closely and amicably with the second in Penn Enterprises for almost as long. And I've learned much from the third on the several occasions when we've met on panels of this kind over the years and in the company of mutual friends. Penn is indeed honored to have been able to bring together a group of translators as brilliant as what we see before us. And though they are all well known outside of these corridors, I'll give you a short background on each, again in alphabetical order. Robert Fagels is Professor of Comparative Literature and Chair of the Department of Comparative Literature at Princeton. He's translated the complete poems of Bacchylides, the Oresteia of Aeschylus, the three Theban plays of Sophocles, and what has brought him broad acclaim this year, the Iliad of Homer. His awards are many and they are multiplying. An honorary doctorate from Amherst, the Howard T. Behrman Award for Distinguished Achievement in the Humanities, this year's New Jersey Humanities Book Award, and most impressive of all, this year's Academy of American Poets Harold Morton Landon Translation Award. The judge of that award was Gregory Rabassa, a renowned member of the Penn Translation Committee. And this is in part what he had to say about Robert Fagel's work in his citation. Quote, in his carefully wrought rendition of the Iliad, Robert Fagel's has brought us as near as we have ever been to Homer's epic in English. As the charioteer must hold the reins of different animals, so must the translator keep two divergent tongues in check as they lead him along. Translation is thus a blend of forces, and Fagels has given us 
just the right meld for this place and this time. His lines sing for us in English as closely as possible to the way Homer's sang for his people in Greek. We can now have an Iliad of our own to cleave to. It is the best of all so far. Robert Fagels is currently at work on a translation of Homer's Odyssey. Richard Howard, a former president of Pan American Center and long a champion of translators, in fact, a practitioner of the art who, though a young man still, has come to seem the dean of translators. He called me a young man earlier, so I'm just getting back at him. <laughs> He's the author of nine volumes of poetry, the third of which was awarded the Pulitzer Prize in 1970, and he has translated some 150, that's the term, 150 works from the French, books by a long list of important authors from de Gaulle and de Beauvoir to Breton, Camus, Gide, and Cocteau. His translation of Baudelaire's Fleur du Mal in 1983 received the National Book Award in translation, and he was subsequently awarded the Penn Translation Medal given for a lifetime's work, and the award of merit from the American Academy and Institute of Arts and Letters, which also chose him for membership. Richard Howard is currently University Professor of English at the University of Houston and poetry editor of the New Republic. Like Bob Fagels, he's now at work on a major project, a new translation of Proust's novel, In Search of Lost Time. Donald Keene began his extraordinary career as a translator during World War II, while a translator and interpreter of Japanese serving in Hawaii, the Aleutians and Okinawa campaigns, and after the war in China. He studied at Columbia, Harvard, and Cambridge, from which he received a Lit D degree, and he's been a professor at Columbia since 1955, currently holding the chair of university professor of Shincho, professor of Japanese, if I got it right? That's amazing. His publications include some 25 books in English, consisting of studies of Japanese literature and culture, and translations of Japanese works of both classical and modern <coughs> literature. And get this, about 30 books in Japanese, <coughs> some written originally in Japanese, others translated from English. His major work, broadly recognized as an essential source for those who wished to have access to Japanese culture, is his history of Japanese literature, the fourth volume of which is now in progress, and the seventh of which has appeared in Japanese. I guess Japanese is a longer language, right? Yes. <laughs> Among his many honors and prizes, I will mention only the latest, a richly deserved special award for a lifetime's work given him this year by the National Book Critics Circle. And now I give you for your pleasure and enlightenment the full panel which will discuss, I'm sure among other things, translation, the classics again. Thank you. Uh, when uh, we were uh, summoned to this uh, task, uh, it seemed of some interest uh, to talk, given the three of us at least, 
uh, and there would have been others that we would like to have had with us, uh, about the nature of retranslation, the fact that it appears in, as, a, as a pretty constant factor in Western culture um, that um, almost every generation, uh, especially in, in relation to uh, the more familiar and classicizing works, um, a new translation is sought for, if not uh, produced. Uh, there is an impulse toward it. And um, in uh, quoting Gregory's uh, praise uh, of, of Bob Fagel's uh, work, the, the Mike Keeley mentioned a, a, an Iliad of our own, that phrase. Um, and I, I, it was precisely both to um, examine that phrase to, to perhaps even contest it that we're here. Is it possible to have an Iliad of our own? Is it a good thing? Uh, do we not perhaps uh, work as translators uh, and indeed as readers with the constant awareness that there is no such thing as a final or in any way um, terminal production, that uh, this is a task that is always suspended and that somewhere in the darkness, 25 years hence, some young person or younger than we is juicing away uh, and will produce the Baudelaire, the Homer, the text that will be their Homer. Um, the, it will be the definitive Homer for the next 25 years that, or whatever. And, and I think the, the pathos of the translator's accomplishment is to know that uh, to some extent one is to be replaced. Great works do not age, translations do and are essentially um, uh, they take their place in a in a different uh, category in a in a procession which uh, moves as it were uh, endlessly backward and I thought it would be of some interest if each of us in our different modes and undertakings addressed this question a little bit I I feel, and I, I think all of us feel, um, that the, the weariness of hearing translators complain um, hmm. about their uh, circumstances, their difficulties with publishers, with reviewers, etc., is, uh, is uh, something that I think we've exhausted, and we need no more of it. And, and, and we want uh, something a little of a different substance, and I felt we could only have it uh, if we had national treasures uh, like the two men on my left, and, uh, and therefore we'll, we'll, we'll undertake something uh, of, a, of a different and less, uh, well, uh, of a less uh, resentful nature <laughs> than is usually characteristic of such proceedings. And, and so I think each of us will speak for a little bit, and then maybe we will have kicked up enough dust to speak to each other, and then if that doesn't satisfy you, you may speak from the floor. 
if you do, when we are through and you're still here and we're still here, mm -hmm. there, are micro <laughs> there are microphones in the aisles and it would be, because this is being recorded for some terrifying future eventuality, you will speak to them and then uh, they will be recorded too. But I think we'll each speak uh, first and I think uh, if you would begin. Be happy to. Should I be here or should I be there? Where should, do you care? Where we are, where we are. Fine. Move a little gear away. Not used to the mic. Is it coming through? I guess it is. As um, Yogi Berra used to say about translation, I'd like to think, it's deja vu all over again. <laughs> or as Auden did say, a trot is a pair of spectacles for the weak-sided. A translation is a book of braille for the blind. Translation is a matter of vision with any luck. Retranslation a matter of revision or fresh interpretation or in a metaphor I much prefer, performance. Especially since I've been hanging out in Homer for the past few years. And Homer's work is actually a performance, even a great musical event which is probably the source of his speed, directness, and simplicity that Matthew Arnold heard. His nobility, too, elusive yet undeniable, that Arnold chased but never really caught. Surely it's the source of Homer's energy, uh, the loft and carry of his imagination, that guaranteed that Homer's song was always new at each performance. And not only new, but total, too. Homer and Bach, his pound tells us, are the only places where we are likely to get it all. Small wonder, then, if all performance of Homer's work are partial, both biased and fragmentary. No two performances will ever be the same. No one performance will ever be complete. All will reflect our changing notion of Homer's poetry, thanks to Nietzsche and Simone Weil, Joyce and Pound, the archaeologists and the scholars and reflect as well our changing hopes for poetry in general, hopes that hinge on changing idioms and attitudes and eras. For history is always breaking in with her latest matter of fact, the Gulf War, for instance, asking us to reassess the poem of war, the Iliad. And so we reperform the great performer, our Homer, generation after generation. He can take it, I suppose. Can we? Yes, providing we have a useful notion of how these countless versions of Homer work together. Not, I hope, in a spirit of combat, as if translation were a kind of shootout at the OK Corral. One of my least favorite reviews is entitled, Whose Homer Wins? Nor even, for that matter, a spirit of emulation, though one can be spurred a little and driven mad a lot by the question, can I outdo Fitzgerald here? Can I outdo Lattimore there? No, the spirit that comes closest to the truth, I do believe, is the one proposed by uh, Walter Benjamin in his great essay, The Task of the Translator, where he says that even the greatest translation is destined to become part of the growth of its own language and eventually to be absorbed by its renewal. From first to last, it's a matter of evolution. For translation, as Benjamin continues, catches fire, to adapt him just a little, on both the eternal life of Homer's Greek and on the perpetual renewal of one's own native language. 
Now, probably no English poet ever caught the Homeric fire quite so brilliantly as Alexander Pope. Here is Pope at his best. In the 22nd book of the Iliad, when Achilles, closing for the kill like a hound closing on a fawn, keeps pursuing Hector around the walls of Troy, unable to run him down and Hector unable to run free, as if it were all a dream, until Zeus intervenes and seals Hector's fate. As through the forest, o'er the vale and lawn, the well-breathed beagle drives the flying fawn, in vain he tries the cover to the brakes, or deep beneath the trembling thicket shakes. Sure of the vapor in the tainted dews, the certain hound his various maze pursues. Thus, step by step, where'er the Trojan wheeled, there swift Achilles compassed round the field. Oft as to reach the Darden gates he bends, and hopes the assistance of his pitying friends, who showering arrows as he coursed below from the high turrets might oppress the foe. He eyes, uh, so oft Achilles turns him toward the plain. He eyes the city, but he eyes in vain. As men in, some, in slumber seem with speedy pace, one to pursue and one to lead the chase, their sinking limbs the fancied course forsake, nor this can fly, nor that can overtake. No less the laboring heroes pant and strain, while that but flies, and this pursues in vain. What god, O muse, assisted Hector's force with fate itself so long to hold the course? Phoebus it was, who in his latest hour endued his knees with strength, his nerves with power, and great Achilles, lest some Greek advance should snatch the glory from his lifted lance, signed to the troops to yield his foe the way and leave untouched the honors of the day. Jove lifts the golden balances that show the fates of mortal men and things below. Here each contending hero's lot he tries and weighs with equal hands their destinies. Low sinks the scale surcharged with Hector's fate. Heavy with the death it sinks and hell receives the weight. Then Phoebus left him. There it all is. As Dr. Johnson described it, the noblest version of poetry which the world has ever seen. Or as Jared Manley Hopkins added only a tad less grandiosely, when one reads Pope's Homer with a critical eye, one sees, artificial as it is, in every couplet that he is a great man. Artificial as it is, true. For those very couplets which Pope derived from Dryden, crisp, resilient, balanced, walk the certain hound and the heroes with him step by step. And the hound himself, the well-breathed beagle, along with the vales and lawns he courses over, are artificial too, derived from the well-cropped grounds of Pope's own Windsor Forest. Just like those men in slumbers and their pastoral reverie of the chase until their sinking limbs the fancied course forsake and as if to supply the moral comforts of Augustan England too, Jove on high with his balanced scales of justice, a figure about as Greek as God in Milton's Paradise Lost, dooms Hector not only to death, but guilty sinner that he is, to eternal damnation in a very Christian hell. In short, as Pope performs Homer, he reperforms the entire post-Homeric repertory, from his own Augustan England backward to its source. Pope's is a very Roman Homer, Homer through the lens of Virgil, 
a gorgeous literary artifact. Even though, as Pope himself would say, Homer makes us hearers and Virgil leaves us readers. Or as see, Richard Bentley, the greatest classical scholar of the age, would scold, it is a pretty poem, Mr. Pope. You must not call it Homer. <laughs> not only a pretty poem, however, but a great English poem, an, ec uh, see, an epic second only to Paradise Lost, perhaps. And that's the point, I think, for all translators in the future. Pope's Homer is unapproachable. It can't be equaled, can't even serve as a model to be followed. But thanks to its very artifice, it maintains a stunning integrity as a poem, in its own right, as we say. And that, I think, is what all translators of Homer might do their damnedest to renew. But we may want to shift the venue somewhat, try to be less literary, try to be a little bit more literal. Unlike Pope, we can hardly start with an inherited literary tradition, that finely ground Virgilian lens, for instance. So why not start with Homer's action, pure and simple? If Homer makes us hearers, this is how it sounds in Greek, with apologies to Greek friends in the audience. Hectorados perkes, clonion nephep ocus achilios, hos hotenebron oresvi, cuon elafoio dietai, orsas exunes, diadankia kai diabesas, ton de per talathesi, katapteksas superthamno, alatanich nuon, theaempadon, ofrican hure. Hos Hectoru Letha, Podokia Peleiona, Hosekitor Meseia, Pulaon Dardaniaon, Antion Aixasthai, Eudme Tus Supergus, Epos Hoikutha Perthen, Alalkoyen Beleesi, Tosakimen Proparoithen, Apostrepsaska Parafthes, Prosperion, Altoste, Potip Tolios Petetae, Ostonenero U, Dunatai Fugonta Diocane, Utaraton dunatai, pupofugen utho diokain, hosetan udanato, marpsaiposen ud hosaluxai. It's a hard act to follow. Still, can we reperform it somehow? Maybe generate from Homer's action, not from a literary tradition, an English poem somehow worth its salt. Why not try to recapture the run on lines, the headlong speed? the nightmare of the chase, that struggle that keeps on mounting, the danger that never ends, and the rough justice of Zeus, no Christian god, just the way of the world, who tips the scales against Hector with all his random, brutal force. No doubt it's all impossible to equal. Anyway, this is what I wrote. And swift Achilles kept on coursing Hector, Non-stop as a hound in the mountains starts a fawn from its lair, hunting him down the gorges, down the narrow glens, and the fawn goes to ground, hiding deep in brush. But the hound comes racing fast, nosing him out until he lands his kill. So Hector could never throw Achilles off his trail, the swift racer Achilles. Time and again he'd make a dash for the Darden gates, trying to rush beneath the rock-built ramparts, hoping men on the heights might save him, somehow, raining spears. But time and again Achilles would intercept him, quickly, heading him off, forcing him out across the plain, and always sprinting along the city side himself, endless as in a dream, when a man can't catch another fleeing on ahead, and he can never escape, nor his rival overtake him. So the one could never run the other down in his speed, 
nor the others spring away. And how could Hector have fled the fates of death so long? How, unless one last time, one final time, Apollo had swept in close beside him, driving strength in his legs and knees to race the wind. And brilliant Achilles shook his head at the armies, never letting them hurl their sharp spears at Hector. Someone might snatch the glory. Achilles come in second. But once they reached the springs for the fourth time, then Father Zeus held out his sacred golden scales. In them he placed two fates of death that lays men low, one for Achilles, one for Hector, breaker of horses. And gripping the beam mid-half, the father raised it high, and down went Hector's day of doom, dragging him down to the strong house of death, and God Apollo left him. So in the midst of all this flux, performance after performance of a great work like the Iliad, the performer's last best hope is to catch fire briefly on Homer's fire, then die down, I expect, and if you're lucky, be renewed by the next performer up. As George Steiner puts it, when a translator looks behind him, what he sees is a eunuch shadow. I'm not sure of the physiology here, not even sure of the feeling. When I look behind me, what I see is Homer first, then Pope, then many recent performers I admire very much. And when I look before me, what I see waiting to take my place is God knows what. Some postmodernist beauty in the name of Homer, something that starts not with the literary reality of Pope, not even with the coherent reality of Homer, but with raw reality out there, unruly and unredeemed. That Homer waiting in the wings may not have much syntax, I suspect. He may well be a video, not a book, a tape cassette and not print. After all, as the great man said, Homer makes us hearers. But an Iliad staged by Peter Sellers, Achilles played by Andrew Dice Clay on a chariot or a Harley, the muse as two live crew, well, and why not? So long as they'll renew me in the bargain, so long as they'll catch fire on Homer's fire, too. I'm afraid that uh, my remarks will seem very uh, much more prosaic than those of the beautiful uh, recitation of Homer in three su superb versions, including the original. Uh, but I... Um, I will talk about problems of translating from Japanese, uh, a subject which is not uh, close to the hearts of most of you, I presume. <laughs> and I, but I will, I, will try to, I will give three examples of different reasons for retranslation uh, of works that have already been translated. The first is of a work uh, written in early in the 13th century, and the opening lines of this work, which are called in Jap the work is called Hojoki, in Japanese, which means something like uh, an account of my hut, by, written by a Buddhist priest who had left the world to live in a hut by himself. Uh, the first translation is, I think, a very good translation, made about 90 years ago. It was made by a Japanese whose knowledge of English was quite extraordinary. He obviously knew the text very well, and his expression uh, shows, as far as I can tell, and no trace of foreignness. And yet, afterwards, when I read my own translation, I think you will see uh, how, it, how 
a new translation, a translation for a different generation became necessary after this first translation was made. Here is the first translation. Incessant is the change of water where the, stream, where the stream glides on calmly. The spray appears over a cataract, yet vanishes without a moment's delay. It's perfectly clear there's nothing wrong with it. It, it, does, it gives a fairly good picture. But my own translation, uh, made about uh, 1955, I should think, is very much closer to the original. And this is what it, the original says in my version. The flow of the river is ceaseless, and its water is never the same. My translation is about a third the length of the earlier translation. Uh, why is the earlier translation so much longer, you may ask? It was because the current fashion of writing English, the kind of English that was taught this Japanese when he was going to school in the 1890s, was the kind of English he used naturally. Uh, it is not wrong, obviously, uh, but it is no longer appealing. I think a direct, even prosaic, straightforward translation is not only closer to the original, but more effective. It, do it does give you more of what the original is really like. And yet, for the first translator, it must have seemed excessively bare. A Japanese at this time uh, were typified by a man who's writing some of you may know, Okakura, uh, who was at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston for many years. And he wrote in this book uh, that if a Japanese painting, a great Japanese painting done in ink, were put in the same room with a Western oil painting, people would find it incomprehensible, trivial, unimportant, and so on. Uh, in other words, for Japanese at that time, and probably also for Americans, something done with the simplicity of a monochrome, uh, ink on paper, uh, would, would dwindle to nothingness uh, alongside an oil painting. And similarly, in writing uh, English, th these people felt it was necessary to beautify the original, make the original seem more impressive, more worthy of the attention of foreign readers. The second example is from a play of the 18th century. It's one of the love-suicide plays of Chikamatsu. Uh, this, the, the translation I'm going to read is a bad translation. It was also done by a Japanese, but I'm not holding it up to you as an example of bad English or unidiomatic use of English, but instead for two, two different contrary reasons. The first is when translating from uh, a language like Japanese or Chinese or any other very remote place, there is a temptation for the translator to make it seem exotic, make it seem far, farther away than it need be. And so people in, tra in translated literature from the Japanese are constantly asking about the august umbrella of my honorable father and things of that sort. This is, is a parody of Japanese, of course, but it has acquired a certain authenticity and certainly would appear in any kind of uh, musical made uh, of a, on a Japanese theme. This, this is the way people are supposed to talk, uh, kimono-clad Japanese, kimono-clad like a dreadnought. Uh, uh, kimono-clad uh, 
Japanese uh, maiden, always maiden, never woman, girl, or anything else, uh, will, will trippingly say this, or she will giggle. The giggle is a, a special uh, uh, talent of a Japanese woman. Uh, this is one danger. Make everything fit to a, uh, a, a preconception of what Japanese is like. There used to be a way of writing titles of Japanese books uh, when they're translating to English, which suggested bamboo. The, this was very elegant. You had joints of bamboo for the title, even if the title was something uh, quite plain. The opposite is also found in this translation. That is to say, you want to prove the Japanese are just like us. <laughs> so they do the same things that we do. They say the same things they do. We do. We do. They use our slang. Well, they're just like us. You can't tell us apart. This is the kind of, oh, I don't know, UNESCO approach to uh, <laughs> Japanese literature. Uh, it irons out the difficulties, but worse than ironing out the difficulties is to add things that are not in the original which seem idiotic and misplaced because they belong particularly to a certain language, the language of the translator, and not to the original. Uh, this section of the play uh, is early in the play. One prostitute... Uh, sees another one in the street, someone she hasn't seen in, a t in, in some time. The, the prostitute uh, tell, uh, addresses her friend, whose name is Koharu, and they talk about two men. One is called Jihei, who is the, the lover of the prostitute, the man she really loves, and another man called Tahei, who is a rich man who is trying to buy up the contract of this prostitute and make her his own. This is the translation. Ah, Koharu-sama. I haven't seen you for a long time, nor heard from you. How much thinner you have grown. You are unwell, perhaps? A certain little bird told me, your master is very particular as to whom you entertain on account of your love for Jihei-sama, and that it isn't often you're allowed to be invited out to other tea houses, while another little bird tells me you have been ransomed by Tahei and are off with him into the country to Itami, which is true. Well, apart from the odious little bird, uh, <laughs> which is not in the original, obviously, uh, the, the, the tone is, is uh, we have this koharu-sama, sama being like son, which you must know is a, just Mr. or Mrs. It can be omitted with profit. Uh, and in this case, it's not in the original, so it was just <laughs> added to make it more picturesque. The Japanese are terribly polite. They always use words like that. And... Uh, you are unwell, perhaps? This, this is really, um, uh, it's, it's the Mikado, it's gems from the Mikado. Uh, you are unwell, perhaps? Yes, indeed. <laughs> I'll read you my translation with some trepidation after attacking the other man. Is that you, Koharu? Where have you been keeping yourself? We don't get invited to the same parties anymore, and I never see you or hear a word from you. Have you been sick? Your face looks thinner. Somebody was telling me that the master at your place now gives all your customers a thorough examination and hardly lets you out of the house, all on account of your jihei. But I've also heard that you're to be ransomed by Tahei and that you'll be living in the country. In Itami, was it? Is it true? Uh, it seems to be conceivable that someone would say these things. Uh, it's, uh, I may be flattering myself, but uh, the, there is a, that this is something which is, it, it isn't specifically contemporary American expression, 
it isn't it isn't mid-Atlantic English for that matter. Uh, it, I was trying to <coughs> achieve a, a, a modern um, direct expression in what the Japanese actually says without either uh, making it exotic or else bringing it too close to us. Uh, speaking of too close is this uh, digression uh, that I've, I've just been reading a translation of uh, one of the novels of uh, Nagib Mahfouz and uh, the American idioms that pop up in this book <laughs> irritate me each time they come uh, it, with a uh, increasing force until you have one of those terrible moments when the book goes out the window. <laughs> the third example <coughs> I must tell you is uh, th there are two translations, both of them by myself. The first in my PhD thesis, uh, circa 1948, and the second one about 15 years later. This is from a play, a historical play, uh, which uh, takes place in China. It's a Japanese play which takes place in China. And um, a man comes rushing in that he's heard something terrible going on. Um, I think you will be able to see why I think my second translation is better, but I'll, I'll labor, belabor the point. Just now I heard that there was a battle going on near the throne and war cries echoed, echoed throughout the palace. Since this was a most unusual disturbance for a palace, I armed myself with my weapons and came rushing here. But what senseless thing do I find? Second version, 12 years later. A moment ago, word came that there was fighting by the throne and war cries echoed throughout the halls. I came running here, buckling on my armor, alarmed by so extraordinary a disturbance in the palace. But what senselessness do I find? Uh, the thing I like about the second translation, first, it's short. That's almost always a virtue in translation, is to, is, is to cut down unnecessary words. And um, the second is, is it a problem one gets in translation from the Japanese, but probably not exclusively the Japanese, is a tendency to follow the original word order, the original construction. In the case of Japanese, subordinate clauses always come before the predicate. And so I thought, since this was a most unusual disturbance for a palace, uh, I, I think now that I, I feel this is awful. I, I didn't at that time because I was being faithful to the original, but people don't talk that way, in English anyway. They talk that way in Japanese. I think that... Uh, um, I arm myself with my weapons. Now that sounds very stilted to me now. I, I can hardly imagine how, that I want to write anything like that now, but that is what it says in the original. Have I been leaving the original behind then? Have I been uh, unfaithful to the text uh, in saying buckling on my armor instead? I honestly don't think so. I think that that is actually what he's thinking, what he's, he would say if he would say it in English. Uh, that uh, excessive fidelity to the original, to ma make the people seem dull, ponderous, wordy, and so on, does no service to the text. But that may be uh, simply because that is the kind of English that people are writing now and speaking now. Uh, I think, uh, if I may mention the subject of uh, Homer, uh, after, after having read uh, Keats' sonnet on first reading Chapman's Homer, 
I read Chapman's home and promptly fell asleep. <laughs> I, I hope that there will be uh, another Keats of our time who will read uh, the translation of Professor Fagel's and write as good a sonnet as Keats did. There is a plausible um, argument that Baudelaire is the first poet of our modernity. The argument can be underlined and undercut by the fact that Baudelaire is also perhaps uh, the most uh, classical of French poets uh, uh, since Racine, and, um, or classicizing. And although Baudelaire invented the prose poem, um, when he writes in verse, uh, he proceeds with all of the contraptions um, that have characterized French poetry uh, since its uh, formulation as a, a, a highly um, artificial uh, art. And so uh, it's a matter of some uh, latitude as to how you're going to uh, take your Baudelaire. Um, in English, uh, Baudelaire was discovered by Swinburne first, uh, and uh, the Swinburnian Baudelaire, the Baudelaire that is of Oscar Wilde and even of Henry James, who as a young man uh, wrote a, an excoriating essay about Baudelaire, the, the Baudelaire of um, the satanic Baudelaire, the wicked Baudelaire, the Baudelaire um, that our grandparents meant when they used the adjective Baudelarian. Um, the, that Baudelaire uh, was translated into verse entire by Arthur Simmons. S-Y-M-O-N-S, -S, Simmons. And um, I thought it would be interesting to consider uh, what happens to that earliest notion of Baudelaire in English uh, and to discover it replaced by uh, a, what we might call a modernist Baudelaire, the Baudelaire of Edna St. Vincent Millay in 1936. In other words, 1890, 1936. And then a convulsive, uh, even calcined Baudelaire of Robert Lowell, uh, a Baudelaire uh, which is much more a critical reading of um, the figure himself rather than of the poem ostensibly being translated. And then um, I would like to read my version, uh, which is um, an attempt to criticize my predecessors, to, uh, as Bob Fagel says, to catch fire from the work. And I thought maybe I ought, since uh, we are not dealing with a language so far from us as either Japanese or classical Greek um, to, to read 
it's a brief poem, um, a celebrated one, and I'll read it off in French, uh, so that we can then, as it were, trace this curious natural history uh, of, of, of this figure. Je suis comme the poem is the, fir, the third version of the, uh, the, the sentiment that Baudelaire calls spleen. Je suis comme le roi d'un pays plus vieux, riche mais impuissant, jeune et pourtant très vieux, qui de ses précepteurs méprisant les courbettes s'ennuie avec ses chiens comme avec d'autres bêtes. Rien ne peut l'égayer, ni gibier ni faucon, ni son peuple mourant en face du Balkan. Du bouffon favori, la grotesque balade ne distrait, ne distrait plus le front de ce cruel malade. Son lit fleur de lisée se transforme en tombeau. Et les dames d'Atour, pour qui tout prince est beau, ne savent plus trouver d'impudique toilette pour tirer un sourire de ce jeune squelette. Le savant qui lui fait de l'or n'a jamais pu de son être extirpir l'élément corrompu et dans ces bains de sang qui des Romains nous viennent et dans sur leurs vieux jours les puissants se souviennent il n'a il su réchauffer ce cadavre hébété où coule au lieu de sang l'eau verte de l'été The wickedness of um, the Swinburnian, Wildean, uh, satanic 90s, uh, with its whiffs of sulfur, uh, was produced uh, by Arthur Simmons thus. And um, one of the problems, of course, was that these translators, all three of them, uh, horribly aware that Baudelaire rhymes, uh, feel that many sacrifices have to be made to preserve terminal assonance. <laughs> and also the fact that the classical French line is a hexameter, which does not go down easily in English uh, and often requires a certain amount of stuffing. I am like the king of a land of rain and ditches. Young and yet old, impotent among my riches, who scorning the bows of his tutors and of his priests endures the weariness of his savage beasts. Neither his hawks nor his game can ever divert him, nor can his people who die before him hurt him. He says of a woman, who can ever test her? He is unmoved by the ballads of his jester. His bed is like a tomb one finds in Cadiz. <laughs>
the wise men who make gold for him never could extirpate the corrupt element in his blood. For these baths of blood the Romans used, remember, who can his sins from July to December have never warmed this cold corpse stupefied, where instead of blood, the green waters of Lethe glide. Well, um, the, the sudden importation of Cadiz uh, to rhyme with, with ladies um, is, of course, the perhaps the, the shocker. It's like Donald's little bird. And it, and it, it, it makes you realize what, what terrible um, importation of a phenomenology that's entirely element, alien to the elements of the poem uh, can, can be uh, committed in the name of, of rhyme. And it's unfortunate, while all those other qualities, the, the wickedness of the poem, um, are, uh, are, as it were, emphasized. Um, Millet, in 1936, um, was eager to um, invoke a Baudelaire of a certain solidity, a, a Baudelaire, she had read T.S. Eliot, of firmness and of a certain um, structural power. And um, she wanted also to preserve the hexameter, and um, alas, she decided that perhaps the poem need not be written in couplets. She could change it. She could, uh, she could call it a, by a different title. She could abandon spleen, and she could put it into quatrains. Thus, a rainy country this that I am monarch of a rich but powerless king, worn out while yet a boy, for whom in vain the falcon falls upon the dove. Not even his starving people's groans can give him joy. Scorning his tutors, loathing his spaniels, finding stale his favorite jester's quips, yawning at the droll tale, his bed, for all its fleur-de-lis, looks like a tomb. The ladies of the court attending him, to whom he, being a prince, is handsome, see him lying there, cold as a corpse, and lift their shoulders in despair. Their shoulders in despair. Uh, no garment they take off, no garter they leave on, excites the gloomy eye of this young skeleton. The royal alchemist who makes him gold from lead, the baser element from out the royal head cannot extract, nor can these those Roman baths of blood, for some so efficacious, cure the hebitude of him along whose veins where flows no blood at all, forever the slow waters of green Lethe crawl. Now, this was a, for many, a, 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 a highly praised translation, much admired. Um, in fact, uh, I think 
there was even a Paul Valery actually, who didn't know English very well, uh, actually said that uh, there would have to be uh, a new Baudelaire who could translate it back into French. <laughs> um, the the Lowell version is is a different matter. It it is a uh, thrilling, and uh, critical, in the sense that it uh, it has something to tell us about French history. Uh, very little about the document before our eyes, but a great deal about what is known and felt by the by the translator. And I think um, uh, certainly for me. Uh, it would not have been possible to translate into any form at all of poems the version that I made uh, of the Flowers of Evil, which I never called that. Uh, we, the working title over at Godin was Bad Blossoms. Um, would have been una unable to proceed without uh, lo what Lowell did with 18 or 20 poems. Uh, I found them of uh, enormous value, even though I, I couldn't feel that they were, in fact, translations at all. But they were, something you said about the, the translation becoming absorbed mm -hmm. into the, the very it's responses and possibilities of the language. And, and it's to that that I, and that's why I, I want so much to read you the Lowell version, though I, I cannot praise it as a translation. <coughs> This was made in 1960. I'm like the king of a rain country, rich but sterile, young but with an old wolf's itch, one who escapes Fenelon's apologues and kills the day in boredom with his dogs. Nothing cheers him, darts, tennis, falconry, his people dying by the balcony, the bawdry of his pet hermaphrodite no longer gets him through a single night. His bed of fleur-de-lis becomes a tomb. Even the ladies of the court, for whom all kings are beautiful, cannot put on shameful enough dresses for this skeleton. The scholar who makes his gold cannot invent washes to cleanse the poisoned element. Even in baths of blood, Rome's legacy our tyrant solace in senility. He cannot warm up his shot corpse, whose food is syrup green lethean ooze, not blood. The uh, discovery that, that Baudelaire was a Catholic poet, but a lapsed Catholic poet, that Baudelaire was a classical poet, but a modernist poet, that Baudelaire was a firmly architectural poet. He, he once wrote a wonderful letter to Alfred de Vigny begging him to, to read his book, not as if it were a, an album of verses, but as if it had a secret architecture the phrase which I think became the absolute musculature of Marcel Proust as well, secret architecture. Um, these uh, notions of Baudelaire, these um, images, uh, were 
enormously helpful and partly helpful in their in their negation in their in in their um, appearance to me of what must be abandoned I'm like the king of a rainy country rich but helpless decrepit though still a young man who who scorns his fawning tutors wastes his time on dogs and other animals and has no fun nothing distracts him neither hawk nor hound nor subject starving at the palace gate his favorite fool's obscenities fall flat the royal invalid is not amused and ladies in waiting for a princely nod no longer dress indecently enough to win a smile from this young skeleton the bed of state becomes a stately tomb the alchemist who brews in gold has failed to purge the impure substance from his soul and baths of blood rome's legacy recalled by certain barons in their failing days are useless to revive this sickly flesh through which no blood but brackish lethe seeps um one has schemed to supply the the sense of the rhyme that is certain kinds of um suspension by other means and uh at least one is conscious of not having made certain kinds of sacrifices to merely uh, those possibilities as i say one awaits the the next version the version that in 25 years possibly in 17 years uh will come uh with uh, a certain authority a certain power uh, a certain discovery uh which will not um invalidate what simmons millay lowell and i have undertaken but will cast it into another kind of shade and uh, i i i live for that moment with a mixture of feelings which i cannot express <laughs> now i i want to ask one question of 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 donald and then we'll in in fact it's possible that we may speak to each other even further um but um uh, you you read translations by japanese people of their work into english um is that a is that a frequent occurrence uh it's no longer frequent in fact it's almost ceased with uh, certain exceptions the reason why it was carried out in the past was that there were virtually no um translators outside of japan that's to say uh if we took a, a year like choosing a year at random 1940 there was probably not one person in the united states who was capable of making a literary translation from the japanese uh there were some japanese who could make translations they were reasonably good they would show them to uh americans or english professors uh in Japan and when asked them to improve them occasionally these turned out well very seldom but it did happen uh nowadays uh, the situation is different the first big change was the fact that during the years of the Pacific War 
uh, several thousand Americans and a certain number of Englishmen were trained in Japanese. Most of the people who studied Japanese at that time uh, yearned nothing more than to forget their Japanese as soon as possible. But perhaps one out of a hundred kept up with their Japanese, which they had learned <coughs> so painfully, and uh, these people form the nucleus of the translators today, the older generation. Uh, there are now, of course, many younger people uh, who are translating, studied in this country, studied also in Japan. But in the past, uh, uh, there simply weren't any translators, uh, or almost no translators in the Western world. And uh, the few translators who exist existed tended to concentrate their efforts on the haiku. Uh, there was one great exception, that was Arthur Whaley uh, in England, who in the 1920s and early 1930s translated uh, some of the great works of classical Japanese literature, astonishing everybody, since nobody dreamt that there was anything there. It was so much easier to assume that there wasn't anything mm -hmm. there. Uh, and uh, Whaley, uh, after perhaps 10 or 12 years doing Japanese, uh, never going to Japan himself, learning it uh, as geniuses do, uh, shifted to Chinese, and there were no more translations from the Japanese uh, until uh, after the war. There, there were no translations of any work of Japanese literature published in this country between 1919 and 1954, and this was a period of exceptional uh, activity in Japan. What about the Whaley translations being supplanted by modern translations? This is another question which I, I bring up with some hesitance, and that is there are translations, the old translations, which retain their strength. Uh, let, I'll give a simple example. The old translation of Don Quixote has a digression in it which is called the curious impertinent. Well, curious impertinent is very peculiar, but it's very memorable. I can never forget those words, curious <laughs> impertinent. The more recent translation says, the man who knew too much for his own good, completely forgettable. Uh, and with Whaley, the, it was the, he has the genius of the phrase, the page with bewitchingly baggy trousers. Who could forget that? Uh, the, the letter that was folded carelessly but elegantly. Uh, there are so many marvelous phrases that in Whaley, but it's not only phrases, he, he changed he transformed the tale of Genji, an 11th century novel, a great Japanese novel, arguably the first novel written anywhere in the world, uh, into an English classic of the early 20th century. Uh, the newer translation, far more accurate, uh, complete in every way, an admirable translation, deservedly praised, doesn't have magic. That's the only difference. Mm -hmm. It's an enormous difference, and I wonder if, um, if there's anyone to my right or left who would want to challenge the cliché that every generation needs its own translation. I mean by that that if you're in this sort of work, um, you look behind you and you see, to be perfectly immodest, you see Golding's Ovid and you see Pope's Homer and you see Dryden's Virgil, and I wonder, in your worst moments, whether the thought ever crosses your mind that if you write well enough, you might last for just a little longer than a generation. 
or is that too is that too immodest even to venture? We're always taught that every uh, every generation needs its translation, and surely there's great truth in that. Do you ever, in wild imaginations, uh, imaginings, Donald well, Richard? I, yes, I'm, I'm talking too much, but I think of what Constance Garnett's translations of Russian literature did to me. Mm -hmm. And when people criticize, I get angry. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> and if it weren't for Constance Garnett. Uh, I would have known the, mm. some of the most important mm. people in my whole life. And if, if people say that, uh, well, uh, she left this out or she used Victorian locutions and instead of saying damn, she said D-N and things of that sort, well, I really don't care. It, uh, nobody could have been more affected than I was when I read Dostoevsky or Tolstoy. Uh, uh, the translation is obviously not bad. It's very good. If new people want to do it, I congratulate them. I hope they'll get published and make a lot of money. But I'm not going to give up Constance Garnett. Uh, <laughs> Bravo. Bravo. Well, I, I differ you from you, Donald. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't go along with that. No. I, I remember how moved and shaken and exalted I was by the first time that I read the translations of The Magic Mountain and uh, and even of Dr. Faustus by Mrs. Lowe Porter. And I have subsequently come to see that Mrs. Lowe Porter was a very poor translator. And my own exaltation at her hands was a piece of luck. And um, I mean, she wasn't so bad that something didn't get through, <laughs> but she was not good enough. And I have subsequently read uh, new translations of Death in Venice, which are... Uh, a great improvement over over the work that had me so rapt when I was 17. And I, 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 I will never forget Mrs. Lowe Porter, but I won't forgive her. <laughs> I think the situation in Japan is much better than it is here as far as publications are concerned. Each major publisher wants to have its translation. And therefore, there are, say, five or six translations of Moby Dick, Wow. Uh, there are uh, tr there are several translations of Ulysses, several translations of Proust. Uh, they uh, they're better and less good, uh, less good. But uh, it's because they, the, the publishers don't want to pay the other publishers, mm -hmm. and the, the practice of issuing big sets, fifty volume sets of literature of the world is very strong. It makes an ideal wedding gift. Uh, and uh, each publisher wants its translation. And this, of course, makes uh, Japan a paradise for translators. Uh, you can make a perfectly good living uh, translating the classics in Japan. Can you also make a perfectly good living in Japan, or rather here in this country, retranslating modern classics of Japanese literature? Is there a growing tradition of translations of Mishima, for instance? Uh, so far, no, but there's more, more complicated questions of copyright and, and who, who holds it. When the translation of um, Mishima's last work, the Tetralogy, called The Sea of Fertility, uh, started to appear, uh, word reached uh, Mishima's widow that the translation was not good. 
and she tried to commission a new translation, but this was not possible because the copyright was held by a publishing company here, which will be nameless, uh, which was pleased with its translation, uh, the translation published, even though the translation as published was it's, uh, viciously attacked by the translator himself, yeah. saying that, had been, that his translation had been manipulated without his consent. Um, but nothing can be done about it. I think that time will have to go by, uh, and then perhaps uh, people will say, well, Mishima is said to be poetic, and what is this? Yeah. Why, why are we deprived of a better translation? Most of the Western modern classics um, that have been translated in this, with a certain celebrity, that is T.S. Eliot's translation of, of uh, St. John yeah. Paris, mm -hmm. um, the translations of Lorca, of Brecht, uh, of Mann, uh, <coughs> are now um, being, the copyright problems have finally mm -hmm. slid away. It took a long time. Mm -hmm. And uh, as in the case of Proust, uh, finally, it was possible to undertake a new version. And the question is often raised, uh, why? Why bother? Uh, if there is a good translation, even of a modern work, why do it again? And uh, most of us who, who live with a certain intimacy with the text know why. And uh, I think the difficulty is to explain it to our editors. <laughs> but I, I think the copyright situation is, is one that, that has been is gradually being overcome, as in the case of Thomas Mann, and even now in the case uh, of Colette, where the initial translations of Colette are not satisfactory, uh, and we are aware of that, and they are now being replaced, and it will take a certain amount of time, and will happen. May I ask a question of both of you? I was um, struck... Um, but something that Donald said in some, I think, prefatory remarks to a translation of Dazai, that um, the remarkable combination of closeness and remoteness was something that struck you in the author and something you wanted to capture. And you, in your introduction to Baudelaire, swear by the remoteness of your poet. Would either of you be willing to say how you make the choice between a combination of closeness and remoteness or simply remoteness of your author, and then how it governs the strategies you may employ. How do you come by that combination in your own English, Donald, if you can talk about it, in uh, that sense of being both close and remote to your own time in working from a Japanese master? Dazai was a very special experience for me. I, I suppose every translator has this once and possibly many times. I've only had it twice, and Dazai was one of them of having the feeling that I could translate almost as if I were writing it myself. Mm -hmm. That it was, I, I didn't have to search for equivalents, that they came, uh, come, came to me whenever necessary. Um, I mean by that, that, for example, there's only one common word in Japanese for the verb to say. But in English, if you kept on translating that as to say, as a machine would, uh, it becomes very boring. It has no nuance. You, you, uh, the Japanese give nuance to it, the verb to say, by using an adverb with it. They say it a certain way. But in English, we have many, many different words uh, saying in different, with different emphasis. And so translating, I was able in each case 
to come up without struggling for each of the, the, the verbs that I needed. Uh, but as for the remoteness, the remoteness in Dazai was because of, it described a society which in some ways was very much like our own, but in, in many obvious ways was not. For example, um, a, a, a woman and her mother are living in a house by themselves, and the woman fails to put out the fire completely before going to bed. As a result of that, part of the house burns down. The next day, the woman goes around the neighborhood apologizing to everybody, profusely apologizing. Uh, in, in our terms, I think it would be more normal for people to gather around and sympathize with her, uh, to offer, do you need blankets or something of that sort? Uh, but in Japan, where a, the, a, a fire in one house is so likely to spread to another because of the flimsy construction. Uh, the danger was to other people, and she had to apologize, and the other people were extremely critical. Nobody was sympathetic. Mm. Uh, uh, people were gossiping about her ir irresponsibility. They said, these two people are playing house. They're, they're, not, they're not serious. Um, this is remoteness, but not remoteness in language, but remoteness in uh, custom or, or a way of living. Uh, I try, insofar as possible, to keep the language contemporary without using anything which, which is specifically slang or specifically of a particular part of this country or specifically associated with some currently modish expression. Uh, I think it's possible to do that without seeming old-fashioned. Uh, there there is, has been the problem in the past, more for the English translators than for us, I think, of trying to translate into an idiom which will sell in both countries without mm -hmm. seeming to be foreign, the, the so-called mid-Atlantic school of translation, uh, where you have to be... You, you can't say... I say because that is English. You can't say hey because that's American. You have to find a golden mean between the two. Uh, but I think the combination of closeness in the essence of the book, in the people in the book, in the things that they are talking about, that they, they speak to us, they're not on the other side of the world, and the difference, the remoteness which makes uh, a book from the Jap reading a book from a Japanese a rather special experience, uh, gives value to translation from the Japanese. Uh, Baudelaire is, is not a comforting figure. Mm. And to mm. uh, translate mm. 190 poems by him mm. is not uh, an agreeable uh, enterprise, not one over which you lick your lips, mm. as I suspect that his first translator did. Uh -huh. That is, I feel that Arthur Simmons like adored the idea of that satanic yeah. whiff of sulfur yeah. naughtiness. Sure. And uh, I, by the time... I had come uh, both in my life and in my reading and in the, in the history of Baudelaire translations, I was no longer um, mm -hmm. able to delight in the naughtiness mm -hmm. of the text. I was often repelled by it. And I think it's the sense of repulsion that uh, sometimes made the translation better. You said, too, that um, you found your choices sometimes limited because you wanted to translate the whole show instead of doing 
single poems. Could you give us an example of that? I'd be interested to know. Yes, uh, for instance, uh, Richard Wilbur has translated six poems by mm-hmm. Charles Baudelaire, and, and two of them are, are, are real masterpieces of, of, of English verse. Right. And uh, when we talked about this question, he said, I don't think that your translations of, as it were, L'Invitation au Voyage and another poem are going to be anthology pieces. Uh, unspoken text like mine, but I do feel that you have found a way of translating the entire corpus, which Baudelaire himself was concerned to think of as a single work, like Leaves of Grass, um, rather than a group of individual perfected poems, and and that was my undertaking, and I knew that I wasn't going to do what Dick Wilbur did with Mm -hmm. one poem, or even two, or six, but I, my, my, my sense of the corpus was uh, a considerable right. one, and I, I sure. knew that was going to be the, the goal, the target. Yeah. Good choice. We have a, I see we're going to lose our audience altogether unless we appeal to them. Are, are there uh, voices out there that would like to reach us? Would you go to the microphone so that you can be recorded? <laughs> Give the man a blanket. I'll repeat your question in that case, Sandy. <laughs> I wanted actually to, I was thinking, uh, I wanted to translate the terms of your uh, very interesting discussion into, into uh, listening to opera, uh, sort of opera quiz question, uh, taking off from what is slight ingenuousness in your desire to be replaced as a translator. Bob's remark about performance and uh, what Mr. Keene had to say about uh, early, I seem to, uh, I'm thinking about singers and performances, and uh, the first time you hear something sung by a performer, it does stay with you the whole time. But I was thinking as well, uh, isn't it in Parma, where once Callas had sung Craviata, they refused even to perform the opera again for fear that anyone else would sing. It had been sung once so well that there was no point in anyone else attempting. And I think I feel what you're saying is a professional translator means something. But myself, as a getting to be a middle-aged reader, I find myself prefer. I, I read one thing and it's so good, I don't care who translates mm-hmm. it again. That is the translation that I want to. I'm sure you have faith with yourself, but I'm not eager for those translations to be replaced, even by quote better ones. And I'm not eager to hear other singers do certain roles. Once I've heard Lottie Lehman, if I have heard Lottie Lehman. I've had exactly that experience in reading any upstart translation of Tikavafi or Seferis after having read Brother Keeley's. <laughs> Don't care if it's supposedly better, it can't be. I agree with that, but maybe you want to pursue the analogy with opera to my right or my left. Well, I'd love to keep pursue the analogy with opera for a special reason. Uh, last year, I went to La Scala, where Traviata was being done for the first time since Maria Callas sang it. It was sung by a, a soprano that nobody had ever heard of before. She had pre- previously performed once in Bari. Uh, <laughs> her name is Fabricini. Fabricini. Uh, she was absolutely glorious. 
uh, it was impossible to get tickets. How did I get a ticket, you ask? It was because somebody knew a relative of the head usher. <laughs> that was the only way. Uh, and she, and I, I heard Kala sing Traviata. I found them totally different experiences. Uh, I think that's the, I, I, I can't imagine having heard Carlos or Flagstadt or Lehmann, all of whom I actually have heard in different roles, that I'd never want to hear those operas again. I would like to hear them done many different ways. Mm-hmm. Even in inferior ways sometimes are, are memorable. As for translations, um, the translations made by Arthur Whaley of Chinese and Japanese literature, uh, I can read any number of times. I find them beautiful works of literature. Uh, I readily agree when people tell me they're full of errors. My students can point out the errors. Uh, Anyone who has uh, access to a modern commentary, uh, which Whaley did not have access to because they didn't exist, can improve on the accuracy of the translations. But those translations uh, probably will not be uh, equaled. They will, there will be new ones, and the new ones will tell us other things that are worthwhile knowing about these works of Chinese and Japanese literature, but they will not uh, efface the memory of Whaley. Mm-hmm. Uh, to sustain the opera quiz uh, figure, uh, I... There is a very admirable, complete, and uh, perfected translation of Montaigne by the late Donald Frame, which mm-hmm. I would recommend to anybody who wants to know what Montaigne is like and what he said. However, uh, I, it is uh, impossible for me to give up the Florio translation, and I, uh, if I'm going to read, it's 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 about as hard for us to read. Uh, Elizabethan English as it is to read Montaigne in French and it's um, it, it, one is uh, in, in there in a different way one is in there uh, committed to a certain kind of verbality uh, which cannot be obtained any other way and certainly not by Professor Frame's lucid uh, and clear and modern versions of the essays but I, uh, that's the text I would not give up and, and would like to hold on to Forever and ever, sir. I have a question. Which is uh, in three parts, and I would like to be. Would, would you go to the the microphone there, please? I think it's over there. Yeah, my question is three parts, and I'd like each of the distinguished speakers tonight to respond, if possible. The first portion is that can poetic style be preserved and salvaged in a translation the way the scientific style can be translated, can be preserved? It's the first question. The second is a little more uh, moving to the direction why the translation of Greek or Japanese or French poetry has any important role or meaning in today's perception and dilemmas? And last and certainly not least, why and how poetry has any relevance in the modern society which is shaped under entirely different historic, social, linguistic, spiritual boundary conditions, and more specifically, 
with the death of mythos, which was the essence of the felt and sound of poetry at that time, in a totally demythologized society of today. How this can be having any relevance for us? Let me just answer the last part, and then I will leave the earlier sections to my colleagues. Um, we are not living in a totally demythologized society. We live in a society with different myths. Um, and it is a matter of discovering some way of uh, reaching those myths and, and making them, uh, appealing to them in, in another way. There is no such thing as a demythologized society. It's a, it is a matter of different myths. Uh, that's, that's all. Donald, do you want to deal with any well, of that? Well, I think a question of style, the first question. Uh, it's obvious that certain languages resemble other languages. Uh, I needn't labor the point, but if someone uh, is translating from Swedish into Norwegian, I should think it would be much easier to do than translating from Swedish into, let's say, to Spanish let alone into <laughs> Bulgarian or Greek. And it's e easier in that case to translate and, and maintain something of the style. Uh, in the case of translating from a, 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 a completely unrelated language, one has no connection with English, such as uh, Japanese, uh, it, it is virtually impossible to maintain the same kind of style. But it is possible for the translator to create a style to create a style which is the suitable one for that particular author, and that has been done. Um, I spoke of uh, Edward Seidensticker's translations of uh, translation of the Tale of Genji, but I'd like to speak now of his translation of Kawabata. Kawabata, who was the only Japanese to have won the Nobel Prize, in his translations of Kawabata, he achieved a Kawabata style it will be very difficult for anybody in the future to translate Kawabata without mm -hmm. adhering to that style, doing something in that manner. It is as if Kawabata found a voice in English uh, and uh, only the, the uh, a translator who was determined to, to take risks would uh, refuse to look and see what Seidensticker had done to this, uh, these works. I should reply to the second question, but I forget what the second question was. <laughs> the second question was, what is the relevance, if any, of the poetry, the uh, Japanese poetry, in our modern society, which at the same time has different perceptions, different modern conditions, historic, social, etc., and about the myth, when I'm saying that the, our society is the myth of a giant, I don't think today you may have many, many, many technological or whatever scientific myths, but we are not having the mythos at the which over. Certainly not. I was struck, I must say, by watching that magnificent series on the uh, Civil War this fall and reading um, many quotations from the hero of that program, I think, who was um, let's see, Shelby Foote. Um, Foote kept on saying that the Civil War is our Iliad, the Iliad is our Civil War. Um, make of that what you will. Foote's point, it seems to me, was uh, that um, the mythology of the Civil War um, can be seen in terms of the mythology of the Iliad. And if the Civil War is with us, and it certainly was with us in those weeks, and I dare say still is with us, yeah. um, 
uh, then it's not very far-fetched, I think, to say that the Iliad might be with us. And I've been struck, too, and gratified by the kinds of letters that come to me from the blue, from total strangers, um, saying that the Iliad meant this or that to them today. Um, so I think I'm with, I'm with my colleague, see, Richard Howard, when it comes to the demythologization of contemporary society or perception. I'm not sure I believe it either. It may be that the myths are different. I think in this case the myths are really rather the same. And that for many people, uh, whether they were dealing with the Civil War or whether they were dealing with the Iliad, uh, it was something like a present, a present reality. That came as a surprise to me, but the more I heard from others, the more unintelligible it became. Um, our, 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 our future president... Mm-hmm. Is there one? Yes, sir. I'm curious the politics of prizes, like the Nobel Prize. You win that, you get translated around the world. Uh, in other words, there are a group of Swedes in determining what I'm going to be reading out of Egyptian literature or Bulgarian literature. Once in a while, it's lucky that some should be sometimes it isn't. Uh, there are kind of a utopian way to avoid this. Uh, well, uh, you, you speak of avoiding it. Uh, one should be grateful for at least some exposure. I am grateful to even have, I mean, were you so aware of Mahfouz before the Nobel Prize was given to him? So, I mean, at least let's, I mean, there is a good deal of complaint to be made about the commodification of the Nobels. You're absolutely right. And it's an interesting point and one that we can discuss. But furthermore, the Nobel, I mean, the, our linguistic apparatus being what it is, and our provincialism as Americans being what it is, we are very grateful to learn about Seafert and Mahfouz and Canetti, for that matter. Uh, I, I am only grateful to the Nobel Committee for uh, exposing me to the degree that they have to uh, the works which I am not familiar with, although I would then perhaps become... Uh, there are alternatives, and I'm eager to make them, and I, maybe there's a better Arab novelist or prose writer than Mahfouz, but at least now I'll know mm -hmm. I'll have something to compare it with and maybe even be able to convince someone to translate it. I, I don't think we can really uh, complain too much about the, the commodification of the Nobels, though I, I, I understand. Would you, do you have something further? To well, I, I, one other thing. I, 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 I totally agree, but I, I also should add a footnote that the Nobel Prize does not guarantee that the books will be read or distributed here I wonder how many of the novels of Claude Simon uh, have been distributed because he won the Nobel Prize. And think of all the Danish writers who won, the Icelandic writers, and so on, or the poor Slovak uh, poet who won the prize two weeks before he died. Uh, these people have not benefited uh, in a commercial way, uh, but we, we should be grateful, as Dick Howard said, for the... Uh, the cases where we wouldn't have known about it. I would never have known about Mahfouz if it hadn't been for the Nobel Prize. I knew about Canetti, but I wouldn't have had the chance to read his works besides the famous novel if it hadn't been for the fact he got the Nobel Prize. I think in the end, there, there, there will be 
some of the Nobel Prize winners over time who are not worthy of the prize. We will decide that so. And there will be other people who should have won it who never did. But I think we should be grateful each time someone like Garcia Marquez wins the prize. It's been a triumph for literature. All right, that will close the session. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you.